0: I wanted to quickly say something about the sermon this morning. Um, There's a moment in this sermon where we'll briefly touch on one of the hardest and I think darkest moments in the history of Israel. Um, And I hesitated uh, for a while about whether or not to include it in this sermon because there are kids here. But in the end, um, I received wise counsel and I, I feel like with several others who had a chance to read through this section, I feel like there's never a moment where it's too early to tell your kids that the sin and the darkness that draws them now is the same sin and darkness that creates terrible things later. There's no difference really between us and the architects of genocide, except that they chase the darkness a bit further. So um, I hope it creates good conversation later on this week uh, with your kids. So with that in mind, let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we are great recipients of your grace. And we're so grateful for your kindness. We're so grateful for your Son, our King, who bought us with His blood. And it's by that blood that we can come to you and ask, us, ask you to give us eyes that see the meaning of your Scriptures and hearts that run to the true Shepherd King of Israel. Thank you. Please bless this time. In Christ's name, amen. Okay. So sometimes when the Bible says something, it says it in bright, blinking letters. Buzzing neon, blinking green arrow pointing at a shiny pot of gold at the bottom of a rainbow. That happens sometimes. In fact, we just read one of these passages, right? When Samuel stands before the people of Israel and says... You think you want a king like the nations, but you don't really want a king like the nations because he'll take your sons and he'll take your daughters and he'll take your stuff and you'll end up his slaves. That's pretty clear, isn't it? You don't read those words and wonder what's going to happen later. No wonder how that's going to go. No, you know. Right at the moment that you read it, you know that it's going to go bad for them. And how do you know? You know because it's staring at you in the face, right there on the paper. But sometimes the Bible says things in winks and whispers. Sometimes the Scriptures carefully lay breadcrumbs for us to follow. And we have to follow those breadcrumbs out of the woods. And in many ways, that journey, the journey of the breadcrumbs, is even more meaningful to the story than the big, bright, blinking arrows. Sometimes the path to discover the meaning of the Scripture's hints and whispers is the thing that gives the story three dimensions. Real gravity. Powerful context. And I think it's funny that a lot of times the breadcrumbs are dropped by a story that is otherwise quite odd. This morning we're going to read the first half of one of the more bizarre stories in the book of Samuel. And that's saying something because there's a handful of very weird stories in this book. And don't you worry, we're going to get to them. To be honest, for a long time I read and I reread and I reread these words in a ta- in a state of total confusion. I can't tell you how many times I read this passage to prepare for this sermon and thought, "What is going on here?" But then I hit the books, and thank God for Brian Walker, by the way, because I'm hopelessly dependent on his library, which is available to you across the courtyard if you ever find yourself in the befuddled state that I found myself in. So I began to read the words of men who have spent years asking questions, and what I discovered, indeed, what I probably should have expected at the outset, is that this passage contains a trail of breadcrumbs. And if you follow that trail, you'll you'll discover that this odd story has so much to say about Saul, the replacement king. You've just got to follow the breadcrumbs out of the woods. So I, I want to get started, and I want you to get started with me. So if you'll open up to 1 Samuel 9. I want you to read together. And I'm going to start with the last few verses of chapter 8. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we, may, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abel, the son of Zorah, the son of Becherath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he was. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of these young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, But they did not find them, and they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zoph, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But his servant said to him, Behold, there's a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let's go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What, what do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God who t- to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us, go to, let us go to see the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. So Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. And they went to the city where the man of God was. So let me start by saying that the chapter markings in your Bibles aren't super helpful. They're not original. Really, they were added much later. And often they interrupt or totally ignore the progression of the story you're reading. So if you'll pretend that chapter marking here doesn't exist, it's easier to see just how seamlessly this story transitions. See, the people of Israel were demanding a replacement king. They wanted freedom from their enemies and peace on all sides and wealth and power. But they did not want God. Notice there, they could have had peace and wealth and power. These things were promised to those who set aside their idols and loved the Lord their God. But they did not love God. They loved God's stuff. And this is clearly a pattern for them. From the moment their toes touched dry ground on the far side of the Red Sea, created things, not creator. When they were hungry, they turned longingly at the pots full of meat in Egypt. When they were thirsty, they shook their fists at the heavens. When they were lonely, they craft idols. And when they're afraid, they ask for a replacement king. A king like all the nations. So God and Samuel are not happy about this request because they know what it means about the hearts of the people of Israel. And they know what it will mean for them when they get what they want. So Samuel warns the people in big, bold letters, don't go that way, Israel. He'll take your sons and your daughters and your stuff, and you'll be his slaves. But the people demand a king to replace the Lord their God, and God in His wrath says okay. And that's where we left off. But that's just the first half of that story. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. And what should we expect but that the, that the scene shifts to follow one of these men back to his city? And what should we expect but that this man is the father of the replacement king? And what should we expect but that the replacement king of Israel is from the capital city of the tribe of Benjamin? So we don't often read the Bible from the beginning to the ending anymore. There are loads of clever Bible reading plans that mix it up and keep you from spending three consecutive days reading from genealogies or something like that. Let's be honest, that's pretty tough. And, and that's good, but we can miss things by not reading the Bible in order. Now let me clarify, the Old Testament as we have it isn't quite in original order. So you'd have to do the work to track down the original order of the Old Testament to read the Bible in order from front to back. You should do that, though, because the books of the Bible are always responding to one another and building upon one another. Never is a book of the Bible written in a vacuum. It may be helpful to think about it like a conversation overheard. One speaker finishes, and just as soon as there's silence available, the next says, yes, yes. And not only that, but... Or, it's funny you mention that, because... Or, I had the very same thing happen to me the other day. The story of the coming Christ is told by many voices, and those voices are speaking to one another as much as they're speaking to us. Now, the reason I mention this is because the first thing we learn about Saul... Israel's replacement king, is that he's a son of the tribe of Benjamin, and that is a major breadcrumb. When the earth was still quite young, not long after God visited Abraham and promised him many sons and daughters, there were nicely situated in a fertile valley, the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And perhaps the most notable thing about these cities is that after a good number of drinks on the weekend, the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah would rally in the city square and rape the most vulnerable of their visitors, or at least try to. So one day God sent special visitors to the city, two angels, and they brought with them one question, are there any righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah? Clearly, they had their answer, because after an evening filled with the blind rage of drunk rapists, fire falls from heaven and the cities are consumed, and that fertile valley has been desolate ever since. Many years later, the people of God are escorted carefully and lovingly into a land promised to them by their kind and loving Father. Like sheep, they are shepherded into this land by men like Moses. like Joshua, men who trusted God and who asked for His help. And as they grew old, these men warned the people not to leave the God who loved them. They warned the people not to chase after the gods of the nations, not to sacrifice their children to the Baals, not to join the nations in pagan orgies. Their shepherds warned them because they loved them, and because they remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. After Moses and Joshua dies, the story of Judges begins. And that's the story that immediately precedes Samuel. The story of Judges is a tragedy because it begins with the people who turn away from God and it ends with the people who are lost without God. The people really did have good intentions, but as soon as Joshua was gone, they began to do exactly what He asked them not to do. They began to leave the God who loved them, and they ran to the gods of the nations. God had warned them long ago not to run away, and He had told them what would happen happen if they did. But they did run away, and so God let them go, and the nations beat them, and enslaved them and took their sons and daughters and their stuff. The story of judges is a story of God's rescue of his people over and over and over again, because they kept running to the nations over and over and over again. But what's so tough about the story of judges is that things go bad, from bad to worse. When they run to the nations, the people of God are corrupted. "...further and further corrupted, until they hardly bear any resemblance to the freed nation that crossed the Jordan so many years before. They are covered in scars, ever more broken every time they run back to the idols of the nations. And the judges who rescue them, they too look less and less like Moses and Joshua, and look more and more like the corrupt and wicked rulers of the nations." The tragedy of Judges is that the nation of Israel gets precisely what it's seeking. By the end of Judges, it looks like the worst and the most corrupted of the nations whom they envied. And the end of Judges is about the tribe of Benjamin. There are a small handful of passages in the Bible that I don't feel comfortable reading out loud when children are listening. And this is one of them. The last story of Judges is about a young woman of Bethlehem who is traveling through the tribal land of Benjamin and who stays for the night in Gibeah. And that evening, the men of the city take her and rape her over and over again until she dies. And in that moment, what I think might be the darkest moment in the history of Israel we see that the nation of Israel has become just like the wicked twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they deserve nothing but the wrath of God. They deserve to be consumed by fire falling from heaven. To make matters worse, when the nation of Israel learns of this young lady's death, they rise up in fury and they demand the lives of these rapists from Gibeah. But when the tribe of Benjamin learns what happens, they rise up in defense of these awful men. And rather than surrender these rapists to justice, they murder in war 32,000 brothers of Israel. This is the tribe of Benjamin. And that is the hometown of Saul. This is the last story we read before we turn the page and start the story of Samuel. And that's the last mention of Benjamin until we read about Saul from Gibeah, replacement king of Israel. In other words, you may as well read, there was a man of Sodom and Gomorrah whose name was Kish, and he had a son named Saul. Thus, in a word, the storms of the replacement king begin to loom on the horizon. And that's just our first breadcrumb. There are black clouds approaching and our first glimpse of Saul the replacement king isn't a happy one. But just on the heels of this unhappy news are three breadcrumbs, three, in quick succession. Wealthy, handsome, tall. Finally, some good news, right? Okay, so here's the problem with that. The the story of Samuel begins with the story of Hannah. And the Song of Hannah teaches us how to read that story. So the problem is that the Song of Hannah teaches us some things about the handsome and the rich and the strong. And they're not good things. Listen to her words. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry don't hunger any longer. The barren has borne seven, But she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to show and He raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. So this is the end of the story of Hannah the barren. And she's poor and she's broken and she needs help. Hannah is a picture of need and a picture of dependency. And Hannah's enemy is by all accounts self-sufficient and strong and surrounded by her many children. But when Hannah cries out to God, He exalts the humble and He shames the proud. Hannah is blessed greatly. She's given a son, and not just any son, Samuel, the prophet of God. And after she cries out to God and she's delivered from her distress, she sings this song to teach us how God works. This is who God is. And this is how He works. He shames the arrogant and the wealthy and the strong. And He lifts up the poor and the weak and the hungry. For not by might shall man prevail. So when we turn to the story of Saul, the replacement king, and when we learn that this guy is wealthy and that he's tall and strong, a real man's man, that he's super handsome, that should give us pause. Because what happens to the mighty and the rich and the powerful in God's kingdom? The bows of the mighty are broken. Rich, tall, handsome. Three more bread breadcrumbs laid neatly in a row. All right, let's keep moving because this is where the story gets weird. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish says to Saul, his son, take one of these young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And so Saul passes through the hill country of Ephraim and he passed through the land of Shalisha, but he did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with them, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. So let's talk for a moment about shepherds. Israel is a nation of shepherds. There were expert shepherds, you might say. Shepherding families had been shepherding for dozens of generations. I imagine it was a matter of pride how you tended your flocks. The way a man shepherds really says something about his character. And shepherding didn't just characterize many homes, many tribes in Israel. All of Israel's greatest heroes were shepherds. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob were shepherds. The great grandfathers of all Israel, all of them were shepherds. And good ones, too. The Lord blessed their shepherding and they grazed the promised land with massive flocks. Moses was a shepherd and Aaron. Moses was shepherding when he saw a burning bush on a hill. He was shepherding when he met his wife. Just in the same way that Moses and Aaron shepherded the people of Israel from slavery to freedom. They shepherded sheep in the deserts and the plains. All of the great and honored heroes of old were shepherds. And it was an honored tradition and a matter of pride. So you should think twice when you read a story about the replacement king wandering from plain to valley to mountain to desert, chasing after a few donkeys. Donkeys are big, guys. Real big. And it's hard to lose them. There's something going on here. There's something a little silly and more than a little profound. The true king of Israel is a good shepherd. And if he loses a sheep, he leaves the flock behind and he searches for that lost sheep until it's found. And when he finds that sheep, he picks it up and he returns it to the flock and he rejoices. The replacement king of Israel can't even keep up with two donkeys. And when he loses those donkeys, he aimlessly wanders from place to place to place without purpose or direction. And note this he doesn't keep searching until they're found, he gives up and he turns around. The story reads like Don Quixote. A ridiculous knight wandering aimlessly in the wilderness with his servant, who, by the way, despite appearances, is much wiser than he. A rich kid wandering for days through hills and valleys and mountains looking for two donkeys. It's silly and ridiculous, and you're supposed to think so, because this is the replacement shepherd of Israel, and he is a bad shepherd. All right, one more breadcrumb and we're out of the woods. Saul's servant said to Saul, Look, there's a man of God in this city, and he's a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let's go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. So Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there's no present to bring him. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, "Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way." So Saul said to his servant, "Well said. Come, let us go." So they went to the city where the man of God was. So Saul's servant says, "Look, Saul, there's a prophet who lives nearby." This is interesting. And I didn't see the significance of this until reading up on it. But if you know anything about the geography of Israel, it'd be obvious. Saul is from Gibeah. Samuel lives in Ramah. Ramah is five miles from Gibeah. Five miles. Now, we know because we've read it Several times, we know that Samuel's popularity has spread like wildfire through the nation of Israel. Everyone knew who he was. Everyone knew that he was a prophet of God. And everyone knew that God was working through Samuel with power. He was at the center of the salvation of the people of God. Everyone everyone knew who Samuel was. Everyone in Israel, except for Saul, who lives five miles away from Saul, and is oblivious to the work of God happening in his own backyard. Dallas is what, like 20 miles from me. I can see Dallas. Stand on the roof of this building, you can see Dallas. That's a lot farther away. Saul has no clue that the man of God who has rescued the people of Israel and who intercedes on their behalf lives just down the street. And that's not the worst of it. When he learns that the man of God lives nearby, listen to how he responds. Yeah, great idea. We'll go to the man of God. How should we bribe him? Look, I know that He's not paying a man for murder or anything. He just wants to know where his donkeys are, right? But think for a moment about the framework behind that question. What can we bring the man of God? What does it say about a man when he believes he can buy the work of God? See, we'll have an opportunity to watch this play out as this story unfolds. But what we've just learned is that Saul is a man far from the heart of God. He does not understand the things of God, nor does he try to. And what we'll find is that when Saul approaches the things of God, he does so to manipulate events to work in his favor. It's his own will he's after. And his own glory, not the will and glory of God. Are you beginning to see Him for who He is? Saw the godless? He doesn't know the God of Israel, nor has he tried to know the God of Israel. He's blind to God's work, very clearly ignorant of the things of God, though it's happening just a stone's throw from his home. And this is the replacement king of Israel. What hope does Israel have without God? A man of Benjamin, born and raised in the epicenter of the corruption of Israel. A man of Babylon, look at him, mighty and tall and handsome, with all the trappings of the arrogant enemies of God. Here is your replacement king, ready to take your sons and daughters and lives. Look at him, wandering aimlessly for lost donkeys. You traded the good shepherd for this man who can't even find a pair of donkeys and gives up trying. You gave up the king of kings for this man who doesn't even know the God who rescued you from slavery. Doesn't even know God or understand Him, but who is totally open to using Him. This is the replacement king of Israel. Think with me for a moment. If you were to assign a title for this king, what title do you think you'd choose? What most appropriately displays the many features of this replacement king? He is from corruption, just like the nations. He has all the trappings of might and glory, just like the nations. He's lost just like the nations. He carelessly shepherds just like the kings of all the nations. And he's godless just like the nations. Surely, Saul is a king like the nations. They asked for him. They asked for this. Just as he is, corrupted as he is, godless as he is, lost as he is, This is precisely what the people of Israel asked for. They wanted a king just like the nations. And my question to you right now in this moment, are you asking for a king just like the nations? I had written a long appeal here, pleading with you not to follow the replacement king. I wanted to spend time asking why the people of Israel had turned to the replacement king instead of trusting the true king of Israel. And once we answered that question, why did they turn to him? I thought that we might have a bit more clarity into our own short-sightedness and our own idolatry. Because we turn to him too, don't we? And maybe that's a good conversation to have. And maybe those are good questions to ask. But this passage, guys, this passage paints a portrait of the replacement king. We see him for who he is in this passage. In three dimensions, we see where he comes from and what he's really like and how he leads. We see how silly he is and how corrupt he is and how manipulative he is. And we see how careless he is. And guys, that's an opportunity. Because when you see the enemy for who he really is, and then you take that portrait and you set it beside a portrait of the true shepherd king of Israel, when you do that, it changes the way you think about temptation. You and I, we are tempted every day. Tempted to stray from the path that leads to the coming kingdom. We are tempted to falter in our trust that the promises of the coming kingdom are better than the promises of this world and of this world's king. Every day we hear from a chorus of voices that it would be better and it would be easier. That it would feel amazing if we just stepped away, just for a moment, stepped off the path of the coming kingdom. And of all the tools that we're given to fight that temptation, this might be my favorite. There's a commercial that was super popular not long ago. It's an Old Spice ad. And in this ad, there's this really beefy guy with huge muscles and a chiseled jaw. And he's talking directly to the camera, addressing the ladies in the room. And he says, look at your man. Now back at me. Now look at your man. Now back at me. And then he says, sadly, your man is not me. And that's funny. But I think it's also exactly what this passage is doing. Look at the shepherd king of Israel. Born meek, gentle. Lying in the bed of a manger. A picture of humility. Setting aside his wealth and his glory, he became poor to rescue his people so that they would become rich. Look at the replacement king, born proud in a large house situated directly in the seedbed of the wicked. He is tall and handsome and rich and a picture of arrogance. Now look back at the shepherd king of Israel. He is the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus knows His own and His own know Him. Just as His Father knows Him and He knows the Father, and he lays down his life for the sheep. Now look back at the replacement king. He is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. He wanders aimlessly for the lost of his flock and then he gives up because he does not care about them. Now look back at the shepherd king of Israel. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church, his blood-bought brothers and sisters. He's the beginning, the first of many to be raised from the dead, that in everything Jesus might be preeminent. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Jesus, was, God was pleased to reconcile himself, all things, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." That's the true shepherd king of Israel. Now look back at the replacement king. He's a liar and a thief. He does not redeem the people of God. He accuses the people of God. He is a lion. Seeking someone whom he would devour. So you need to know that temptation isn't going to stop. Distraction is ever at your heels. Promising peace on all sides and wealth and power and pleasure unimaginable, without any of the hassle of following Jesus. And that promise is attractive, guys, because following Jesus is hard. It means dying every day, and it means choosing to prefer others above yourself, and it means fighting to it means fighting remaining sin in your heart and giving sacrificially, and stifling ambition. But when you find yourself tempted, I want you to remember a few things about the one behind that temptation. I want you to remember that He's wicked. Corrupted beyond imagining. I want you to remember that He might be filthy rich and attractive and powerful, but He's an awful shepherd. And He cares nothing for you. And I want you to remember that he's godless and God is your only hope. And then I want you to think about the true shepherd king, meek and wise and kind. I want you to remember that he gave himself up for you. And that you have hope because he is good and because he is faithful. He has rescued his people and he is right now preparing a place for them, a brilliant home full of feasting and glory, no more pains, no more tears, only laughter and songs and fellowship, forever and ever. That's your future if you hope in Jesus. Set that image beside the the world, even the best parts of it, and it's nothing. Nothing. I want to read just a paragraph from C.S. Lewis. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You know now who he really is, this replacement king. You know what he's like and how little he cares for you. You've seen him in action. So, when he offers you pleasure without consequences, and when he invites you to drink at his table, say no. And then keep on going on the path that leads to the coming kingdom, because the true shepherd king awaits. Let's pray together.